Do you know a baby's cry matches the mother's voice? A newborn child, just two or three days old, cries in a distinctive way, mimicking the sound of the child's mother. Uh, researchers had taken and examined 60 healthy babies from both French and German families and discovered some very fascinating things. Each newborn baby has its own cry melody, a specific pattern of sounds that is unique to his or her own cry, but more importantly, they discovered that the child had a unique way to match the very sounds and intonations of the mother. Now, if, if you're a mother, this isn't news to you. You didn't need this research to, to tell you what is so obvious. That's why moms can seem miraculously to hear the faintest sound their child makes from seemingly miles away. Or they can, at a playground or picking their child up in the nursery, tell you which is their child simply by listening. It's fascinating. If you're ever at a playground with a bunch of kids playing and one of them gets hurt, the mothers instinctively look up, listen, and unless it's their child, they, they don't have to worry about it. But the mom knows who is their child that cries because apparently the child has a unique cry pattern that matches mom. Do you realize, however, that this is the same, this is true, of God's children? Our passage this morning actually describes that. It's the unique cry of the children of God. This is one of the great privileges of being one of God's, being one of God's adopted sons and daughters, is that we inherit a a unique cry pattern by which we cry, Abba, Father. It is a way that distinguishes who we belong to and lets the world know whose we are. We've been studying the book of Galatians since September, and here we come into chapter 4. Paul realizes that these early Christians are in danger of doubting the fact that they are God's children. And because they're not God's children, they're in danger of not inheriting God's inheritance, eternal life. So using the metaphor of adoption, and something that's culturally common in that time period that they would understand, he wants to point to their statuses as sons and daughters, and as he says in verse 7, if you are a son, then an heir through God. Now, it has been two months since we've been in Galatians. We had this wonderful Advent series and a couple of great sermons in January. So let me get you back up to speed so you kind of get oriented again of of where Paul's argument is in this amazing letter. Recall in chapter 3, Paul covered 2,000 years of Old Testament history and most importantly showed the relationship between three of some of the great biblical figures, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ. Paul talked about how God gave Abraham the promise that through his line, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The law came through Moses, and and far from canceling that promise, it made the promise more urgent and more necessary, and that promise was fulfilled in Jesus himself. So that everyone whom the law of Moses would drive to Jesus Christ would inherit the blessings promised to Abraham. And so when we get to Galatians 4, 1 through 11, Paul is recounting the same arguments to these Galatians, verses 1 through 3. He talks about what they were as slaves, as as children under the constant tutelage and supervision of another. And then in verses 4 through 5, he talks about now they are adopted sons and daughters of the king. And in verses 8 through 11, based on those realities, he gives an impassioned uh, appeal to living the Christian life. 
So the argument is very simple. It breaks down, you were slaves, you are sons. Why would you want to be a slave again? That's how these 11 verses break down. Uh, Let me pray for us, ask God to bless the teaching of his word, and we're going to jump right into a really dense but, but so refreshing passage of scripture. Let's pray. Father, our souls are full of being led through our team, singing these great, amazing truths. We have sang the very truth of this passage we're about to study together. We cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you that it is not to a religious system of do's and don'ts and and morality metrics that you have called us to. You've called us to a deep, abiding, genuine relationship. You haven't just merely called us to that. You made it possible because of what you have done through the cross work of Christ. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would have to say, Father. And as the the rain falls down outside, giving life to the land, we pray that the word of God goes forth, bringing life to our souls. We thank you because that is a reality for most of us in this room. Though we were once your enemy, the preaching of the word, the sharing of the word brought conviction in our heart and drew us to you. And now we are an adopted son or daughter. Father, we pray you make that reality for others in this room that you'd make that a constant reality at this church. And we thank you because we know you will do it. In the name of Jesus, amen. So let's look at the first three verses of chapter 4. Paul's talking about that they were a a child. They're they're like us, no different than a slave. Even though they're the owner of everything, they're under guardians. You need to understand that Paul is wanting to change the operating metaphor that these Christians live under. And in doing that for them, he's doing that for us because I think we, like the Galatians, operate under the same kind of metaphor, that our relation with God is not familial, but our relation with God is based on formalities. And so Paul wants to drive the point home, and he understands that in this culture, they had a much stronger division between childhood and adulthood. And when you were a child, there were masters and tutors and mentors and what they would call pedagogos, people who trained you and supervised you and monitored you. And, and it might have been nice, but there wasn't a moment of the day that you weren't being told what to do and how to live. But when you became a man or a woman, everything changed. And that can have good and bad, depending on how you look at it, but the point was, you're now freed from those tutors and freed from that supervision. You're freed from that kind of bondage. You see, in antiquity, you were either a boy or man, a girl or woman. There was no such thing like a teenager. That didn't exist, right? There's not even a teenager, right? Let alone adolescence, which is now a new category we have. You You know, those things didn't exist, right, until last century, There was no such thing as a teenager. Tell this to your teen kids of your parents. There was no such thing as a teenager until 1904. Yeah, until G. Stanley Hall came out with his book called Adolescence. And then all of a sudden, we had a new marketing industry. Point is, in antiquity, you were either a boy or a man, girl or a woman. And in their cultures, the three prevailing cultures of their time that influenced the Galatians, that was really dominant in that area, they all had that transition. If you were in Rome, if you were part of the Roman culture, you had the toga virilis, where a boy would bring his toys and girls would bring their dolls, and they would offer them up in sacrifice to the gods as a symbol that they have passed on into adulthood. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, that image is what was behind Paul's thinking in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. It was the toga virilis he was thinking about. 
Now, the Jews, they, they had and still have to this day the bar mitzvah, or if you're a girl, a bat mitzvah, and that was where you became a, a son or daughter of the law, because up until about the 12 years of age, you were under the total control and authority of your father's tutelage. But when you became 12, you became a son or a daughter of the law, and to prove that, you would recite almost entirely from memory the entire Torah. So we're talking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomies, and they would recite it all because now they didn't no longer needed their father to guide them because the Yahweh's word would guide them. So they had the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. If you were Greek, it was the apaturia when you became 18. A young man went from being a boy, he became what's known as a nephebos, a cadet of the city clan state, and you had special responsibilities to, to perform for those two years. As a symbol, you would get your long hair, you would cut it off and offer it to Apollos. The point is, every one of those cultures had a distinct way of understanding there is a radical transition from this stage to this stage. And Paul is maximizing on that in Galatians chapter 4. He's using this understanding of them to bring out an analogy meant to illustrate what it was like to be under the law and what it's like now to be in Christ. And it's radically different, as radical as it is, as a boy who becomes a man and a girl becomes a woman. So to, to really jump us, get our minds back into that, I want us to go back to Galatians chapter 3 to read a couple of verses where Paul is really setting up the argument of chapter 4. He does it in chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting at verse 23, and for those three verses, Paul wants to talk about life under the law, and then in verse 26, he's going to be talking about life in Christ. Verse 23, now before faith came, Paul writes, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, pedagogos. Uh, we get the English word uh, pedagogy from that, how to teach, how to train, a system of training, pedagogy. Pedagogos comes from that word. That the, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, verse 25, that faith has come. We're no longer under a guardian. So that's what we were under the law. Verse 26, these new relationships in Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. So the picture Paul draws out in the beginning of chapter 4 that we've just heard read is of a boy in a home of wealth and standing who, who really is legally the heir and young master of the entire family estate, but because he is a minor, he so lives under the rules and the tutelage much like a slave. And what so Paul is saying is that slaves and children were, were kind of occupied the same situation. They were under constant supervision, constant tutelage. The pedagogos was always around them, always hovering above them, making sure they were doing what they were supposed to do, training them to the direction that they should go. It was a nonstop process. Now, for me, my pedagogos was, uh, I called her, well, her, she was Sister Vieira. 
And if you went to Catholic school like I did in the 70s, you have a Sister Vieira. I heard about a Sister Esther and others. And, and, and Sister Vieira was my pedagogos. No matter what I did as a young boy, whether I was in class, whether I was on the playground at recess, I could be in the boys' bathroom. If I did anything wrong, my pedagogos, Sister Vieira, would be sure to point me in the right direction. And usually she used a yardstick to do it, right? You Catholic school people, you're kind of getting a little, you're feeling the experience. They hide behind the door, and when you walk in, pam, right on the pants. Well, Sister Vieira was my pedagogos, always training me to the right direction, whether I liked it or not. So, so that's the picture Paul is trying to get. Notice in verse 3, we, we know this is the picture because in verse 3 it says, in the same way, so he's making this illustration, in the same way, when we lived under the law, we were like that child under constant supervision, guidance, and tutelage. That's the point he just made in chapter 3. Now, we're going to unpack that really unusual phrase, elemental principles of this world, because it appears again in verse 9. The important thing to know now is that the law, its job was as a tutor. All of God's requirements, his demands, his standards at the Old Testament was to point to Jesus. The whole point of it, the whole point of two-thirds of the Bible was to point the reader to Jesus Christ. That's what we just got through reading Paul say. But because of the self-serving nature of the human heart, you know what we do to that? We, we take the point of the Old Testament that's supposed to drive us to Christ and we turned it into a, a system of merit and rewards by which we judge others and ourselves by. And this happens everywhere. So if you're a religious person, right, you, you judge yourself by the law and how well you keep it. If you're an irreligious person, you judge yourself by how well you can live without the law. Either way, though, that standard has become the measure of our acceptance rather than those things pointing us to true acceptance in Christ. So we've completely, completely missed the main point of God's revelation. It was supposed to drive us to something else. Instead, it became the thing we gauge ourselves by. Whether you're religious or irreligious, it happens all around us. So the metaphor in, in verses 1 through 3 is this metaphor of slavery, uh, of a kind of constrained childhood, of immaturity, of lack, right? But the metaphor changes dramatically in verses four through seven. And just as you see, just as you see in verse two, where the, the father appoints a time for his son's coming of age, we see in verse four, God the father sent his son at just the right time that he appointed. So, so the metaphor continues on, the illustration continues on. Just as the human father appoints a time for their son or daughter to become a, an adult, God at the right time did the same for his children. Now, recall with me, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to have it on the screens, Galatians 3.19, uh, I put it up in two translations because I think the, the NLT does a good job of teasing it out. Um, so the ESV, that's one we read all the time. Why then the law? See, Paul was anticipating the question of the people. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Good translation. I do like the NLT. Uh, why then was the law given? They, they, this, this committee interpreted a lot of it for us. Why then was the law given? Well, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. See how they interpreted that. 
But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. See, it can't get any clearer than that. The job of the law was to be in place to show humanity you cannot do it. You cannot do this thing. You see, friends, our, our problem is not that we don't jump through enough hoops. That was never the point of the Old Testament. That's never the point of God's demands. Because if we, if we think our problem is that we cannot jump through enough hoops, then the solution is just tell me which hoops to jump through and I'll keep jumping through them and the Savior is who? Me, because I was able to jump through all the hoops. The law is trying to say something radically more different. It's saying that you cannot, you inherently do not have the capability or the ability, let alone the desire to do the thing you're supposed to do. It's only when you come to the realization that my problem is far greater than lack of performance. My problem is just what I am. When you come to that point, when you read the Word of God, and it crushes you under the mountain of realization, I can never satisfy these demands, then you understand why God gave us that part of the Word of God. The problem is people will read that, and, and in their mind, they're going, well, I, I, I can live up to that somehow. I'm going I'm to reform myself somehow. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing these things. Those are good as far as that goes. But the point is, you're still trying to jump through hoops to save yourself. When we read the law, it says, I can't do this. I need someone to do this for me. I can't save myself. Are you kidding me? The Lord says, no, I'm not kidding you. It's impossible, isn't it? Yes. Now you're getting the point. When the fullness of time had come, when, when the world stage was set, that humanity could understand this, guess what he did? He sent his son. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, when humanity was ready to fully understand this message, he sent forth his son. What's amazing about this, friends, is God is not making up his plan haphazardly. God is not figuring this out as he goes. He has a master plan of redemption, redeeming us, you and I, and anyone in Christ, and he's working out that plan. Oh, friends, if if, if you came to know Jesus because somebody told you one day that God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, that's great. It does. But God has a plan that so far exceeds you. It's not about you. It includes you, but it exceeds you. And unless you understand, wow, God has this amazing plan, and I have a part in that, you're going to approach him differently than if you think God's plan is me. Does that make sense? So God's working out his plan, and when it came right, when things were right, now it's time for the next step. Bring Jesus. And there are so many ways we can think about this, but I just want to just give you a glimpse of how God orchestrated events of history for our redemption. Three, 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 well, I'll say four ways, but three on the screen, but I'll throw in a fourth one. Number one, religiously. It's interesting. The Jews, whom God was working through to be his people, because of their Babylonian exile, finally, the, the Babylonian exile, the Jews had been broken of their idolatrous streak. Do you realize monotheism was not the way of the world, right? If you know anything about world history, monotheism was not the way people thought, right? 
Even the Jews, though, were tempted to worship false gods constantly. That's the, read the Old Testament. We remember Samuel. We saw that all through it. But after the Babylonian exile, they were crushed of that propensity to worship false gods. They realized there's only one God, and he's Yahweh. So when the Babylonians crushed them in 586, from that time on, you don't really see idolatry in the Jewish people at all. As a matter of fact, that's partly why in the New Testament Gospels, they were so fanatic to keep the law because they did not want to violate it anymore. So they were broken of their idolatry, but a second thing that was really important was um, because of the exile, there was no land for the people of God, they created the synagogue system. So all throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle East, all throughout, synagogues popped up where they would train and worship and teach about Yahweh and teach the law. What that meant for the early church, however, was there was a built-in infrastructure all throughout the then known world that the early Christians could take the gospel to and start sharing it with the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Third thing that's really significant is by this time through the scribe Ezra, the Old Testament canon had been collected and completed. So no longer were they broken of their idolatry. There was now an infrastructure of educational institutions and they had the content of the Old Testament all throughout the Mediterranean, right? But also socially, because of Alexander the Great, who conquered the entire then-known world, and he brought Hellenism with them. Everyone spoke, might have spoke their own dialect, but everyone spoke the lingua franca of the day, Greek. Everyone spoke Greek, and everyone understood Hellenistic culture. So they shared a common language and a common culture, even though they were a diverse people group. But that's still not it. Politically, at this time, who was the ruling power? Rome. And Rome instituted what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. If you broke any of their laws, they kill you. So most people obeyed the laws. But they also instituted the most advanced system of roads ever been built. My friends, think about this. So religiously, the time was right. They were no dollar idolatrous. They had the word of God. It was circulating amongst all the synagogues. Socially, they all spoke the same language. They understood the same culture politically. There was an infrastructure road system that could get anyone anywhere in the empire easily and safely. And fourth, fourth geographically, if you look at a, a Bible map, Israel is perfectly a land bridge connecting three major continents, Africa to the south, Asia to the east, and Europe to the north. And all these things had to come right. So when the gospel message exploded, because what Jesus was teaching, it spread like wildfire. God's plan includes us, but it exceeds us. But when the time was right, Oh, look at verses 4 and 6. We, we, God, God acted and did two monumental things. Number one, verse 4, God sent his son, the objective work of sending his son into this world, born of a woman, born under the law. Those phrases explain to us how Jesus was fully qualified to represent us in our humanity and situational context. Because Jesus was God's son, his divinity is established. His, his humanity was established because he was born of a woman, right? And his righteousness is established by the implied realization that though he was born under the law, he was not condemned by the law. So because he's divine, he can represent God. Because he's human, he can represent us. Because he's righteous, his representation matters both to his divinity in maintaining it and to his humanity in reclaiming it. So when did God act? When did God act? 
not on our timetable, not on our expectations, not on our, we need you to do this now. He acted when the time was right, according to his larger plan of the redemption of humanity. How did he act? He sent his son. Why did he act? Verse 5, why did he act? To redeem those who were under the law. That was all of us. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. That is just blow your mind reality. He redeemed us from under the law so we could be his sons and daughters. Let me take that huge abstract truth and try and make it more, more where we're living, more we can understand and connect with. Uh, through the story of a young eight-year-old boy sitting in class, fell asleep, as young boys tend to do in class, uh, but he woke up to horror as he realized that there was now a puddle below his feet and the front of his pants were wet. His heart froze and he thought, if the guys find out, I'm dead meat. If the girls find out, they'll never talk to me again. So, so he bowed his head on the table and said, Lord, I'm in an emergency. I need help. I need it now. Five minutes from now, I'm dead meat. So he looked up from his prayer and he caught the eye of his teacher who started moving towards him, the look in her eye that he had been discovered. And as his teacher was coming to, to, to snatch him up, a classmate named Susie was walking down the aisle with a goldfish bowl full of water. She stumbled and fell and dropped it in his lap. All the water everywhere. He pretended to be angry, but in his mind he was praying, thank you, Jesus, I'm born again. Thank you. Now, rather than being the object of ridicule, he was an object of sympathy. So the teacher picks him up quickly, takes him down to the gym, gets him some gym shorts while his pants dry out. He comes back to the class. His classmates are on their hands and knees cleaning up around his desk. It's like, whoa, the sympathy is awesome. <laughs> but as life would have it, the ridicule that should have been on him was transferred to Susie. Susie tried to help. They said, get away from here, you klutz. You've done enough. And as the day progressed, the sympathy got better and better for him. But the ridicule got worse and worse for Susie. Finally, at the end of the day, standing at the bus stop, he walked up to Susie and said, Susie, you did that on purpose, didn't you? She whispered back, I went, I went my pants too once. <laughs> the ridicule that should have been on us was transferred for sympathy because of the work of another. That's Paul's point in what Jesus did on the cross. We should have been justly, rightly ridiculed, but instead we got sympathy and mercy and grace because of the work of another to take our ridicule upon himself. That's what Jesus did. And Paul says this, and Peter says it in Galatians 3 and 1 Peter 2. In Galatians 3, 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the first thing God did when the time was right is he sent his son into history to accomplish his cross work. But that's not all. That's just the objective reality. Whether or not you like it, whether or not you feel it, that's what happened. 
But verse 6 tells us the second thing, that God does something that He subjectively sends His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So objectively, He sends His Son into the world to accomplish the work on the cross, and subjectively, He sends His Spirit into our hearts that gives us a relationship with Him that calls Abba, Father. And I, I can't help but to point out, I just have to point this out, the Trinitarian work of God in our adoption as His sons and daughters. Notice, as God the Father sends the Son, then God the Father sends the Spirit. All three members of the triune Godhead working for our adoption. The Father plans, the Son secures, the Spirit applies, all for our benefit. And we see it all there in the text. He sent the Son so that we could have the status of sonship. He sent the Spirit so we could have the experience of it. These things can never be separated. And the conclusion that Paul makes in this section, verse 7, you're no longer a slave. You're not a slave to works or requirements or demands. You're a son. You're a daughter. That changes the game dramatically. The work of the Son is an objective reality, whether we feel it or not, whether you have some emotional experience. But the work of the Spirit brings a radical subjective experience in our lives. And Paul uses it to highlight the cry of a child, Abba, Father. It's the unique kind of cry melody that we have that shows us we belong to Him. He says that you cry, crazone. It's a loud, deep, emotional feeling of connection. That's not necessarily weeping or anything like that. It is, it, well, it's, it is what a bunch of us did Thursday night at Norm's birthday party at the Ducks game. <laughs> when the Ducks scored, we went, yes, that's what I want to see. And when they got scored upon, we went, what are you doing? It's a cry of engagement and intense involvement. That's the spirit gives us, changes us, makes us passionate about who he is. But notice, secondly, it's also a, a cry of intimate familial connection daddy pops papa whatever whatever phrase you love to hear from your children if you have children saying to you it, it is not a a formal stiff uh, appropriateness it is a embracing of family and it can be so intimate it can be so passionate secondly because or thirdly because our relationship with God is spirit-empowered. You see this right there in the, in the passage? The, the spirit, it, it empowers our relationship with God. But notice in Galatians 4, 6, it's the spirit that's crying. Did you notice that? Look, look at with me, uh, Galatians 4 and 6. And because you are sons, because you are adopted, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying. Well, who's crying? It's the spirit that's crying, Abba, Father. I want you to hold your finger in Galatians. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. You need to see this. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul's writing in the same kind of themes. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
So in Galatians 4, it's the Spirit empowering us, and the Spirit is crying out. In Romans 8, it is the same Spirit that's empowering us to cry out. The point I'm getting at is it's an amazing work of God intricately happening, and we are participating in it. It is not all God or all me. It is God working, and I'm participating in that, crying out, Abba, Father. And if you, if you know Romans 8, there's that wonderful passage that sometimes we just don't know what to pray. And we, it's groanings that we pray out. Verse 26, it's because the Spirit that's been given to us is doing that ministry work that's praying for us as we participate with Him. So the work of the Son is done externally to us, and this can happen without feeling, but the work of the Spirit happens internally in us. And it's a radical change of our affections. It moves us. It changes us. We can never separate these two. We, we cannot have the intellectual Christianity and then just the emotional Christianity. Those two, apart from each other, are completely unhinged because we don't see that in the New Testament. There is this robust life of the mind connected to the heart never separated, or not one made to obscure the other. They work together beautifully, and the key, the key to experience the, the fullness of the Spirit in the experience is to meditate on the work and character of Christ. I'll say that again. The key to, to having the emotional, subjective experience that we, is ours in Christ is to meditate on the work and character of Jesus Christ's cross work for us. You see, it's the heart and the mind working together. Let me give you two steps to, to, to make that experience more real for you. Number one, based on what we've just read, we have to set aside significant time to meditate on the person and work and character of Jesus Christ. It, it, is, it is not going to happen well, it could happen with you sitting here, but the plan is it has to be an ongoing daily experience where you're putting aside time because we're so distracted in our world. But you set aside significant time to be amazed at the person of Christ and what he's done and what he's doing. And that begins to change your affections, friends. Focusing on Jesus Christ, not in a, 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 just a moral example but recognizing, as the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus Christ, with laser beam focus, though he despised the, the cross for the joy set before him, he went for it. We look at Christ as our example, and it stimulates our affections and passions for him. How can we not look at the cross and be moved with passion? So we set aside time to focus on what he's done asking the Spirit to illuminate us and make it real to us. The close connection between verses five, 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 shows us that well, as we meditate on the Bible, we need to have that saturate the way we pray and the way we study. Second, we have to press into this realization that we are sons and daughters because it's not natural to our fallen natures. Every day, spontaneously, you have to remember, I'm a son of the king, I'm a daughter of the king. Press in, lean into that relationship or by default, you will have a formal standoffish relationship. Press in to your new status as a child of God. Make it spontaneous. Press in, relate to him that way. And then third and finally, so you were slaves, you're now sons, and Paul concludes in the few minutes we have, don't go back to slavery. <laughs> don't go back. Why would you want to give up 
a father like this for formality and rules. Why would you abandon that? He talks about the way they lived when they didn't know God. They were enslaved to other gods, and that's true of all of us, whether you're religious or irreligious. We're either going to relate to God in one of three ways. We're going to relate to Him through religion, my works, my formalities, or, or I'm going to relate to Him through kind of an irreligion, my own works, my own morality. Neither of those work. The third way is relating to God on the basis of the gospel. So, to put it in terms some of you might recognize, I'll either be a legalist or I'm going to be a relativist. None of those work. It's got to be about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Unfortunately, because they had given into some false teaching, they were slipping on this. So we see in verse 10, Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And so I talked about this element, this phrase, elementary principles of the world. That, that refers to the kind of the basics, the core, the ABCs of a language, the basic arithmetic of quantum physics. You're going back to the things you were delivered from. Why do you want to go back to that? And by the fact that you're observing days and feasts and years, you're turning your relationship into a religion that's degenerated into formalism. Why? John Stott says this in his, in his commentary on Galatians. Oh, the folly of these Galatians. We can certainly understand the language of the prodigal son who came to his father and said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants or slaves. But how can anyone be so foolish as to say, you have made me your son, but I'd rather be a slave? It is one thing to say, I do not deserve it. It's quite another to say, I do not desire it. I prefer slavery to sonship. Yet that was the folly of the Galatians under the influence of their false teachers. question we have to ask ourselves is that are we spiritually children or adults? You're still living under the notion that you can satisfy God by your good efforts and your works? Are you still believing that God revealed His requirements to you so that you would try to earn your righteousness through keeping those requirements? Do you relate with God more as a, a religion with duties to perform or as a father with benefits to share? If you answer yes to any of those, and in any given day or week, we'll answer yes to one of those, that is us being children. But the, when you begin to realize that God revealed all of that to point us to Christ, to make us realize we can't do this on ourselves, that Christ did it for us so that we could be his sons and daughters and revel in that relationship with him, to, to know him with our minds, to love him with our affections, to relate with him as family we are then becoming his adopted sons and daughters. This will be the lifelong struggle of Christianity. The fact that we are reading a book written to men and women 2,000 years ago that struggled with it, and yet it resonates with our own experience, shows us and tells us we need to continue to press in into our adoption in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and kind Thank you that Christianity is not a system for perfect people. From out of the gates, men and women struggled with the very things we struggle with. Father, we take encouragement that we are part of the human experience, but we also take encouragement that that human experience can be transformed by the power of Christ. Lord, I thank you that I'm standing in a room where I know men and women who can testify of that transformative power. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has not experienced that, that they would be convicted to the heart, long to be transformed, 
to understand the way of relating to you is grace, not their legalism, not their relativism, but because of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.